Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Section 1 of The Golden Bell, The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 8. Departmental Kings of Nature. The preceding investigation has proved that the same union of sacred functions with the royal title which meets us in the king of the wood at Nemi, the sacrificial king of Rome, and the magistrate called the king at Athens, occurs frequently outside the limits of classical antiquity and is a common feature of societies at all stages from barbarism to civilization. Further appears that the royal priest is often a king, not only in name but in fact, swaying the scepter as well as the crozier. All this confirms the traditional view of the origin of the Titidia and priestly kings in the republics of ancient Greece and Italy, at least by showing that the combination of spiritual and temporal power of which Greco-Italian tradition preserved the memory has actually existed in many places. We have obviated any suspicion of improbability that might have attached to the tradition. Therefore we may now fairly ask, may not the king of the wood have had an origin like that which are probable tradition assigns to the sacrificial king of Rome and the title of the king of Athens. In other words, may not his predecessors and office have been a line of kings whom a replican revolution stripped of their political power, leaving them only their religious functions and the shadow of a crown? There are at least two reasons for answering this question in the negative. One reason is drawn from the abode of the priest Nimai, the other from his title, the king of the wood. If his predecessors had been kings in the ordinary sense, he would surely have been found residing, by the fallen kings of Rome and Athens, in a city of which the sceptre had passed from him. This city must have been Arisia, for there is none nearer. But Arisia was three miles off from his forest sanctuary by the lake shore. If he reigned, it was not in the city, but in the greenwood. Again, his title, King of the Wood, hardly allows us to suppose that he had ever been a king in the common sense of the world. More likely, he was a king of nature, and of a special side of nature, namely the woods from which he took his title. If we could find instances of what we may call departmental kings of nature, this is of persons supposed to rule over particular elements or aspects of nature, they would probably present a closer analogy to the king of the wood and the divine kings we have been hitherto considering, whose control of nature is general rather than special. Instances of such departmental kings are not wanting. Kings of Rain in Africa on a hill at Boma, near the mouth of the Congo, dwells Namvuluvu, king of the rain and storm. Of some of the tribes of the upper Nile, we are told that they have no kings in the common sense. The only persons whom they acknowledge as such are the kings of the rain, Matakodu, who are credited with the power of giving rain at the proper time, that is, in the rainy season. Before the rains begin to fall at the end of March, the country is a parched and arid desert, and the cattle which form the people's chief wealth, perish for lack of grass. So when the end of March draws on, each householder betakes himself to the king of the rain, 
and offers him a cow that he may make the blessed waters of heaven to drip on the brown and withered pastures if no shower falls the people assemble and demand that the king shall give them rain and if the sky still continues cloudless they rip up his belly in which he is believed to keep the storms among the bari tribe one of these rain kings made rain by sprinkling water on the ground out of a handbell priesthood of the alfei among tribes on the outskirts of abyssinia a similar office exists as being thus described by an observer the priesthood of the alfei as he is called by the Baria of Konoma, is a remarkable one. He is believed to be able to make rain. This office formerly existed among the Algeds and appears to be still common to the Nuba Negroes. The Alfei of the Baria, who is also consulted by the northern Konoma, lives near Tembadir, on a mountain alone with his family. The people bring him tribute in the form of clothes and fruits, and cultivate for him a large field of his own. He is a kind of king and his office passes by inheritance to his brother or sister's son. He is supposed to conjure down rain and to drive away the locusts, but if he disappoints the people's expectation and a great drought arises in the land, the Alfei is stoned to death, and his nearest relations are obliged to cast the first stone at him. When we passed through the country, the office of Alfei was still held by an old man, but I heard that rain-making had proved too dangerous for him and that he had renounced his office kings of fire and water in cambodia in the backwoods of cambodia live two mysterious sovereigns known as the king of the fire and the king of the water their fame is spread all over the south of the great indo-chinese peninsula but only a faint echo of it has reached the west down to a few years ago no european so far as is known had ever seen either of them and their very existence might have passed for a fable were it not till lately communications were regularly maintained between them and the king of cambodia who year by year exchanged presents with them. The Cambodian gifts were passed from tribe to tribe till they reached their destination, for no Cambodian would essay the long and perilous journey. The tribe amongst whom the kings of fire and water reside is the Chereis, or Jerei, a race with European features but a sallow complexion, inhabiting the forest-clad mountains on and high tablelands which separate Cambodia from Amman. Their royal functions are of a purely mystical or spiritual order. They have no political authority, they are simple peasants, living by the sweat of their brow and the offerings of the faithful. According to one account, they live in absolute solitude, never meeting each other and never seeing a human face. They inhabit successively seven towers perched upon seven mountains, and every year they pass from one tower to another. People come furtively and cast within their reach what is needful for their subsistence. The kingship lasts seven years. The time necessary to inhabit all the towers successfully let many die before their time is out. The officers are hereditary in one, or, according to others, two royal families who enjoy high consideration, have revenues assigned to them, and are exempt from the necessity of tilling the ground. But naturally the dignity is not converted, and when a vacancy occurs, all eligible men, they must be strong and have children, flee and hide themselves. Another account admitting the reluctance of the hereditary candidates to accept the crown does not countenance the report of their hermit-like seclusion in the seven towers for it represents the people as prostrating themselves before the mystic kings whenever they appear in public having thought that a terrible hurricane would burst over the country if this mark of homage were omitted probably however these are mere fables such as commonly shed a glamour of romance over the distant and unknown a french officer who had an interview with the redoubtable fire king in february eighteen ninety one found him stretched on a bamboo couch diligently smoking a long copper pipe 
and surrounded by people who paid him no great difference. In spite of his mystic vocation, the sorcerer had no charm or talisman about him, and was in no way distinguishable from his foes except by his tall stature. Another writer reports that the two kings are much feared, because they are supposed to possess the evil eye, hence every one avoids them, and the potentates considerately cough to announce their approach, and to allow people to get out of the way. They enjoy extraordinary privileges and immunities, but their authority does not extend beyond the few villages of their neighbourhood. Like many other sacred kings of whom we shall read in the sequel, the kings of fire and water are not allowed to die a natural death, for that would lower their reputation. Accordingly, when one of them is seriously ill, the elders order consultation. If they think he cannot recover, they stab him to death. His body is burned and the ashes are piously collected and publicly honoured for five years. Part of them is given to the widow, as she keeps them in an urn, which she must carry on her back when she goes to weep on her husband's grave. Supernatural Powers of the Kings of Fire and Water We are told that the Fire King, the more important of the two, whose supernatural powers have never been questioned, officiates at marriages, festivals, and sacrifices in honour of the Yan or Spirit. On these occasions a special place is set apart for him, and the path by which he approaches is spread with white cotton cloths. A reason for confining the royal dignity to the same family is that this family is in possession of certain famous talismans which would lose their virtue or disappear if they passed out of the family. These talismans are three. The fruit of a creeper called Kui, gathered ages ago at the time of the last deluge, but still fresh and green. A rattan, also very old, but bearing flowers that never fade. And lastly, a sword containing a yan or spirit guards it constantly and works miracles with it. The spirit is said to be that of a slave whose blood chanced to fall upon the blade while it was being forged, and who died a voluntary death to expiate his involuntary offence. By means of the two former talismans, the water king can raise a flood that would drown the whole earth. If the fire king draws a magic sword a few inches from its sheath, the sun is hidden and men and beasts fall into a profound sleep. Were he to draw it quite out of the scabbard, the world would come to an end. To this wondrous band, sacrifices of buffaloes, pigs, fowls and ducks are offered for rain. It is kept swathed in cotton and silk, and amongst the annual presents sent by the king of Cambodia were which stuffs to wrap the sacred sword. Gifts sent by the kings of fire and water to the king of Cambodia. In return, the kings of fire and water sent him a huge wax candle and two calabashes, one full of rice and the other of sesame. The candle bore the impress of the fire king's middle finger, and was probably thought to contain the seed of fire, which the Cambodian monarch thus received once a year fresh from the fire king himself. This holy candle was kept for sacred uses. On reaching the capital of Cambodia, it was entrusted to the Brahmins, who laid it up beside the regalia, and with the wax-made tapers, which were burned on the altars on solemn days. As the candle was a special gift to the fire king, we may conjecture that the rice and sesame were the special gifts of the water king. The latter was doubtless king of rain as well as of water, and the fruits of the earth were boons conferred by him on men. In times of calamity as during plague, floods, and war, a little of this sacred rice and sesame was scattered on the ground to appease the wrath of the maleficent spirits. Contrary to the common usage of the country, which is to bury the dead, the bodies of both these mystic monarchs are burnt, but their nails and some of their teeth and bones are religiously preserved as amulets. It is while the corpse beans consumed on the pyre that their kinsmen of the deceased magician flee to the forest and hide themselves for fear of being elevated to the invidious dignity 
which he has just vacated. The people go in search for them, and the first whose lurking place they discover is made king of fire or water. These then are examples of what I have called departmental kings of nature, but it is a far cry to Italy from the forests of Cambodia and the sources of the Nile, and though kings of rain, water and fire have been found, we have still to discover a king of the wood to match the Arician priest who bore that title. Perhaps we shall find him nearer home. End of chapter 8《Section 2 of The Golden Bell, Volume 2, Part 1, The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, Part 2, by James Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 9 The Worship of Trees. 1. Tree Spirits. Great Forests of Ancient Europe. In the religious history of the Aryan race in Europe, the worship of trees has played an important part. Nothing could be more natural. For at the dawn of history, Europe was covered with immense primeval forests in which the scattered clearings must have appeared like islets in the ocean of green. Down at the first century before our era, the Hercynian forest stretched eastward from the Rhine for distance at once vast and unknown. Germans who see the question had travelled for two months through it without reaching the end. Four centuries later, it was visited by the Emperor Julian, and the solitude, the gloom, the silence of the forest, appeared to have made a deep impression on his sensitive nature. He declared that he knew nothing like it in the Roman Empire. In a Roman country, the wilds of Kent, Surrey and Sussex are remnants of the great forest of Anderida, which once clove the whole of the southeastern portion of the island. Westward it seems to have stretched till it joined another forest that extended from Hampshire to Devon. In the reign of Henry II, the citizens of London still hunted the wild bull and the boar in the woods of Hampstead. Even under later Plantagenets, the royal forests were sixty-eight in number. In the forest of Arden, it was said that, down to modern times, a squirrel might leap from tree to tree for nearly the whole length of Warwickshire. The excavation of ancient pile villages in the valley of the Po has shown that long before the rise and probably the foundation of Rome, the north of Italy was covered with dense woods of elms, chestnuts, and especially of oaks. Archaeology is here confirmed by history, for classical writers contain many references to Italian forests which have now disappeared. As late as the 4th century before our era, Rome was divided from central Etruria by the dreaded Ciminian forest, which Livy compares to the woods of Germany. No merchant, if we may trust a Roman historian, had ever penetrated its pathless solitudes, and it was deemed a most daring feat when a Roman general, after sending two scars to explore its intricacies, led his army into the forest, and making his way to a ridge of the wooded mountains, looked down on the rich Etrurian fields spread out below. In Greece, beautiful woods of pine, oak, and other trees still linger on the slopes of the high Arcadian mountains, still adorn with their verdure, and deep gorge through which the Ladon hurries to join the sacred Alpheus, and was still, down to a few years ago, mirrored in the dark blue waters on the lonely lake of Phineas but they are mere fragments of the forest which clothe great tracts in antiquity, and which, at a more remote epoch, may have spanned the Greek peninsula from sea to sea. Tree Worship Practiced by All the Aryan Races in Europe From an examination of the Teutonic words for temple, Grimm has made it probable that amongst the Germans the oldest sanctuaries were natural woods. However this may be, 
tree worship is well attested for all the great european families of the Iron stock amongst the celts the oak worship of the druids is familiar to every one and their old word for a sanctuary seems to be identical in origin and meaning to the latin nemus a grove or wooded glade which still survives in the name of Nemei. sacred groves were common among the ancient germans and tree worship is hardly extinct amongst their descendants at the present day how serious their worship was in former times may be gathered from the ferocious penalty appointed by the old german laws for such as dared to peel the bark of a standing tree the culprit's navel was to be cut out and nailed to the part of the tree which he had peeled and he was to be driven round and round the tree till all his guts were wound about its trunk the intention of the punishment clearly was to replace the dead bark by a living substitute taken from the culprit it was a life for a life the life of a man for the life of a tree at upsala the old religious capital of sweden there was a sacred grove which every tree was regarded as divine the heathen slaves worshipped trees and groves the lithuanians were not converted to christianity till towards the close of the fourteenth century and amongst them at the date of their conversion the worship of trees was prominent some of them revered remarkable oaks and other great shady trees from which they received oracular responses some maintained holy groves about their villages or houses where even to break a twig would have been a sin they thought that he who cut a bough in such a grove either died suddenly or was crippled in one of his limbs proofs of the prevalence of tree worship in ancient greece and italy are abundant in the sanctuary of Aesculapius at cos for example it was forbidden to cut down the cypress trees under a penalty of a thousand drachms but nowhere perhaps in the ancient world was this antique form of religion better preserved than in the heart of the great metropolis itself in the forum the busy centre of roman life the sacred fig tree of romulus was worshipped down to the days of the empire and the withering of its trunk was enough to spread consternation through the city again on the slope of the palatine hill grew a cornel tree which was esteemed one of the most sacred objects in rome whenever the tree appeared to a passer-by to be drooping he set up a hue and cry which was echoed by the people in the street and soon a crowd might be seen running helter-skelter from all sides with buckets of water as if says plutarch they were hastening to put out a fire tree worship among the finnish agrian peoples among the tribes of the finnish agrian stock in europe the heathen worship was performed for the most part in sacred groves which were always enclosed with a fence such a grove often considered merely of a glade or clearing with a few trees dotted about upon which in former times the skins of the sacrificial victims were hung the central point of the grove at least among the tribes of the volga was a sacred tree beside which everything else sank into insignificance before it the worshippers assembled and the priest offered his prayers at its roots the victim was sacrificed and its boughs sometimes served as a pulpit no wood might be hewn and no branch broken in the grove and women were generally forbidden to enter it the ostiaks and the woggles two people of the finnish agrian stock in siberia had also a sacred grove which nothing might be touched and where the skins of the sacrificed animals were suspended but the groves were not enclosed with fences near kuopo in finland there was a famous grove of ancient moss-grown firs where the people offered sacrifices and practised superstitious customs down to about sixteen fifty when a sturdy veteran of thirty years war dared to cut it down at the bidding of the pastor sacred groves now hardly exist in finland but sacred trees which offering support are still not very uncommon 
on some furs the skulls of bears are nailed apparently that the hunter may have good luck in the chase the ostiacs are said never to have passed a sacred tree without shooting an arrow at it as a mark of respect in many places they hung furs and skins on the holy trees in the forest but having observed that these furs were often appropriated and carried off by unscrupulous travellers they adopted the practice of hewing the trunks into great blocks which they decked with their offerings and preserved in safe places the custom marks a transition from the worship of trees to the worship of idols carved out of sacred wood within their sacred groves no grass or wood might be cut no game hunted no fish caught not even a drought of water trunk when they passed them in their canoes they were careful not to touch the land with the oar and if the journey through the hallowed ground was long they laid in a store of water before entering on it for they would rather suffer extreme thirst than slake it by drinking of the sacred stream the ostiacs also regarded as holy any tree to which an eagle had built its nest for several years and they spared the bird as well as the tree no greater injury could be done them than to shoot down an eagle or destroy its nest trees are regarded by the savage as animate but it is necessary to examine in some detail the notions on which the worship of trees and plants is based to the savage the world in general is animate and trees and plants are no exception to the rule he thinks that they have souls like his own and he treats them accordingly they say writes the ancient vegetarian porphyry that primitive men led an unhappy life for their superstition did not stop at animals but extended even to plants for why should the slaughter of an ox or a sheep be a greater wrong than the felling of a fir or an oak seeing that a soul was implanted in these trees also similarly the Hidatsta Indians of North America believe that every natural object has its spirit, or to speak more properly, its shade. To these shades some consideration or respect is due, but not equally to all. For example, the shade of the cottonwood, the greatest tree in the valley of the upper Missouri, is supposed to possess an intelligence which, if properly approached, may help the Indians in certain undertakings. But the shades of shrubs and grasses are of little account. When the Missouri, swollen by a freshet in spring, carries away part of its banks and sweeps some tall tree into its current, it is said that the spirit of the tree cries while its roots still cling to the land and until the trunk falls with a splash into the stream. Formerly the Indians considered it wrong to fell one of these giants, and when large logs were needed they made use only of trees which had fallen off themselves. Too lately some of the more credulous old men declared that many of the misfortunes of their people were caused by its modern disregard for the rights of the living cottonwood the iroquois believed that each species of tree shrub plant and herb had its own spirit and these spirits it was their custom to return thanks the wanaka of east africa fancy that every tree and especially every coconut tree has its spirit the destruction of a coconut tree is regarded as equivalent to matricide because that tree gives them life and nourishment as a mother does her child in the Asawu islands of fiji a man will never eat a coconut without first asking its leave. May I eat you, my chief? Among the Thompson Indians of British Columbia, young people address the following prayer to the sunflower root before they ate the first roots of the season. I inform thee that I intend to eat thee. Mayest thou always help me to ascend, so that I may always be able to reach the tops of mountains, and may I never be clumsy. I ask this from thee, sunflower root. Thou art the greatest of all in mystery. To omit this prayer would have made the eater of the root lazy and caused him to sleep long in the morning. We are not told but may conjecture that these Indians ascribe to the sunflower the sun's power of climbing above the mountain tops and of rising betimes in the morning. 
Hence, whoever ate of the plant with all the due formalities would naturally acquire the same useful properties. It is not so easy to say that why women had to observe continence in cooking and digging the root, and why, when they were cooking it, no man might come near the oven. The Dyaks describe souls of trees, and do not dare to cut down an old tree. In some places, when an old tree has been blown down, they set it up, smear it with blood, and deck it with flags to appease the soul of the tree. Siamese monks, believing that there are souls everywhere, and that to destroy anything, whatever is forcibly to dispossess a soul, will not break a branch of a tree, as they will not break the arm of an innocent person. These monks, of course, are Buddhists. But Buddhist animism is not a philosophical theory. It is simply a common savage dogma, incorporated in a system of an historical religion. To suppose with Benfi and others that the theories of animism and transmigration current among rude peoples of Asia are derived from Buddhism is to reverse the facts. Buddhism in this respect borrowed from savagery, not savagery from Buddhism. According to Chinese belief, the spirits of plants are never shaped like plants, but have commonly the form either of human beings or of animals, for example, bulls or serpents. Occasionally at the felling of a tree, the tree spirit has been seen to rush out in the shape of the blue bull. In China to this day, the belief that tree spirits dangerous to man is obviously strong. In southern Fukin, it deters people from felling any large trees or chopping off heavy branches, for fear the indwelling spirit may become irritated and visit the aggressor or his neighbours with disease and calamity. Especially respected are the green banyan, or ching, the biggest trees to be found in that part of China. In Amoy, some people even show a strong aversion from planting trees. The planters, as soon as the stems have been as thick as their necks, being sure to be throttled by the indwelling spirits. No explanation of this curious superstition was ever given us. It may account to some extent for the almost total neglect of forestry in that part of China, so that hardly any except spontaneous trees grew there. Particular sorts of trees, tenanted by spirits. Sacrifices to tree spirits. Sometimes it is only particular sorts of trees that are supposed to be tenanted by spirits. At Cabaldi in Dalmatia, it is said that among great beeches, oaks and other trees, there are some that are endowed with shades or souls, and whoever fells one of them must die on the spot, or at least live an invalid for the rest of his days. If Woodman fears that a tree which he has felled is one of this sort, he must cut off the head of a live hen on the stump of the tree with the very same axe with which he cut down the tree. This will protect him from all harm, even if the tree be one of the animated kind. Silk Cotton Trees in West Africa The silk cotton trees, which rear their enormous trunks to a stupendous height, far outtopping all the other trees of the forest, are regarded with reverence throughout West Africa, from the Senegal to the Niger, and are believed to be the abode of a god or spirit. Among the Uwe-speaking peoples of the slave coast, the indwelling god of this giant of the forest goes by the name of Huntin. Trees in which he specially dwells, for it is not every silk cotton tree that he thus honours, are surrounded by a girdle of palm trees. The sacrifices of fowls and occasionally of human beings are fastened to the trunk or laid against the foot of a tree. A tree distinguished by a girdle of palm leaves may not be cut down or injured in any way, but even silk cotton trees, which are not supposed to be animated by Huntin, may not be felled unless the woodsman first offers a sacrifice of fowls and palm oil to purge himself by the proposed sacrilege. To omit the sacrifice is an offence which may be punished with death. 
Sea Amores in ancient Egypt. Everywhere in Egypt, on the borders of the cultivated land, and even at some distance from the valley of the Nile, you meet with fine sycamores standing solitary and thriving as by a miracle in the sandy soil. Their living green contrasts strongly with the tawny hue of the surrounding landscape, and their thick impenetrable foliage bids defiance even in summer to the noonday sun. The secret of the verdure is that their roots strike down to rills of water that trickle by unseen sluices from the great river. Of all the Egyptians, every rank esteemed these trees divine and plied them regular homage. They gave them figs, raisins, cucumbers, vegetables, and water and earthenware pitchers, which charitable folk filled afresh every day. Passers-by slaked their thirst at these pitchers in the sultry hours, and paid for the welcome drought by a short prayer. The spirit that animated these beautiful trees generally looked unseen, but sometimes he would show his head or even his whole body outside the trunk and only to retire into it again. Sacred Trees in Africa, Syria, and Patagonia People in Congo set calabashes of palm wine at the foot of certain trees, for the trees to drink when they are thirsty. The Wanaka of Eastern Africa pays special honour to the spirits of coconut palms in return for the many benefits conferred on them by the trees. To cut down a coconut palm is an inexplicable offence, equivalent to matricide, that is sacrificed to the tree on many occasions. When a man in gathering the coconuts has fallen from the palm, they attribute it to the wrath of the tree spirit, and resort to the oddest means of appeasing him. The Maasai particularly reverence the Sabugo tree, the bark of which has medical properties, and a species of parasitic fig which they call Ritete. The green figs are eaten by boys and girls, and older people procreate the tree by pouring the blood of a goat to the foot of the trunk and strewing grass on the branches. The natives of the Bisagos Islands off the west coast of Africa sacrifice dogs, cocks, and oxen to their sacred trees, and they eat the flesh of the victims and leave only the horns, fastened to the trees, for the spirits. In a Turkish village of northern Syria, there is a very old oak tree which the people worship, burning incense to it and bringing offerings as they would to a shrine. In Patagonia, between the Rio Negro and the Rio Colorado, there stands solitary an ancient Acadia tree with a gnarled and hollow trunk. The Indians revere it as the abode of a spirit and hang offerings of blankets, ponchos, ribbons, and coloured threads on it, so that the tree presents the aspect of an old clothes shop, the tattered weather-worn garments drooping sadly from the boughs. No Indian passes it without leaving something, if it be only a little horsehair, which he ties to a branch. Hollow trunk contains offerings tobacco, beads, and sometimes coins. But the best evidence of the sanctity of the tree are the bleached skeletons of many horses which have been killed in honour of the spirit, for the horse is the most precious sacrifice that these Indians can offer. They slaughter the animal also to propitiate the spirits of the deep and rapid rivers, which they have often to ford or swim. Sacrifices to Trees the Kayans in central Borneo ascribe souls to the trees which yield the poison they use to envenom their arrows. They think that the spirit of the Tessum tree, Antiaris toxicaria, is particularly hard to please. But if the wood has a strong and agreeable scent, they know that the man who felled the tree must have contrived by his offerings to mollify the peevish spirit. In some of the Louisiade islands, there are certain large trees under which the natives hold their feasts. These trees seem to be regarded as endowed with souls, for a portion of the feast is set aside for them, and the bones of pigs and of human beings are everywhere deeply embedded in their branches. Among the Kangra mountains of the Punjab, a girl used to be annually sacrificed to an old cedar tree, 
the families of the village taking it in turn to supply the victim. The tree was cut down not very many years ago. On Christmas Eve it is still customary in some parts of Germany to gird fruit trees with ropes of straw which the sausages prepared for the festival at Lane. This is supposed to make the trees bear fruit. In the mark of Brandenburg, the person who ties a straw round the tree says, Little tree, I make you a present. He will make me one. The people say that if the trees receive gifts, they will bestow gifts in return. The custom, which is clearly a relic of tree worship, is often observed on New Year's night or at any time between Christmas and Twelfth Night. Trees supposed to be sensitive and fear wounds. If trees are animate, they are necessarily sensitive, and the cutting of them down becomes a delicate surgical operation, which must be performed with as tender a regard as possible for the feelings of the sufferers, who otherwise may turn and rend the careless or bungling operator. When an oak has been felled, it gives a kind of shrieks or groans that may be heard a mile off, as it were the genius of the oak lamenting. E. Wild Esquire hath heard it several times. The Ojibwe's very seldom cut down green or living trees from the idea that puts them to pain, and some of the medicine men profess to have heard the wailing of the trees under the axe. Trees that bleed not a cries of pain or indignation when they are hacked or burned occur very often in Chinese books even in standard histories. Old peasants in some parts of Austria still believe that forest trees are animate, and will not allow an incision to be made in the bark without special cause. They have heard from their fathers that the tree feels the cut, not less than a wounded man is hurt. Apologies offered to trees for cutting them down. In felling a tree that begets pardon, it is said that in the upper palatinate, also, old woodmen still secretly ask a fine, sound tree to forgive them before they cut it down. So in Jarakino, the woodman craves pardon of the tree he fells. Before the Ilocanes of Luzon cut down trees in the virgin forests or on the mountains, they recite some verses to the following effect. Be not uneasy, my old friend, though we fell what we have been ordered to fell. This they do in order not to draw down on themselves the hatred of the spirits who live in the trees, and who are apt to avenge themselves by visiting with grievous sickness such as injure them wantonly. When the Tagalogs of the Philippines wish to pluck a flower, they ask leave of the genius, no, no, of the flower to do so. When they are obliged to cut down a tree, they beg pardon of the genius of the tree and excuse themselves by saying that it was the priest who bade them fell it. Among the Tigris-speaking tribes of North Abyssinian people are afraid to fell a green and fruit-bearing tree, lest they incur the curse of God, which is heard in the groaning of the tree as it sinks to the ground. But if a man is bold enough to cut down such a tree, he will say to it, Thy curse abide in thee, or he will allege that it was not he, but an elephant or a rhinoceros that knocked it down. Amongst the hoors of Tukaland in West Africa, when a man wishes to make palm wine, he hires woodmen to fell the trees. They go in the palm wood, set some meal on the ground, and say to the wood, That is your food. The old man at home sent us to cut you down. We are still children who know nothing at all. The old man at home has sent us. They say this because they think that the wood is a spirit, and that it is angry with him. Before the carabatak cuts down a tree, he will offer a betel and apologies, and even passing the place afterwards, he should see the tree weeping, or as we should say, exuding sap, he hastens to console it by sprinkling the blood of a fowl on a stump. 
the basoga of central africa think that when a tree is cut down the angry spirit which inhabits it may cause the death of the chief and his family to prevent this disaster they consult a medicine man before they fell a tree if a man of skill gives leave to proceed the woodman first offers a fowl and a goat to the tree then as soon as he has given the first blow with the axe he applies his mouth to the cut and sucks some of the sap in this way he forms a brotherhood with the tree just as two men become blood brothers by sucking each other's blood after that he cuts down his tree brother with impunity an ancient indian ritual directs that in preparing to fell a tree the woodman should lay a stalk of grass on the spot where the blow is to fall with the words o plant shield it and that he should say to the axe o axe heard it not when the tree is fallen he poured melted butter on the stump saying grow thou out of this o lord of the forest grow with a hundred shoots may we grow with a thousand shoots they anointed the severed stem and wound a rope grass around it bleeding trees again when a tree or plant is cut it is sometimes thought to bleed some indians dare not cut a certain plant because there comes out a red juice which they take for the blood of the plant in samoa there was a grove of trees which no one dared hew down once some strangers tried to do so but blood flowed from the tree and the sacrilegious strangers fell ill and died down to eighteen fifty nine there stood a sacred large tree at norders in the tyrol which was thought to bleed whenever it was cut moreover people fancied that the steel pierced the woodman's body to the same death that it pierced the tree and that the wound on his body would not heal until the bark closed over the scar on the trunk so sacred was the tree that no one would gather fuel or cut timber near it and to curse scold or quarrel in its neighbourhood was regarded as a crying sin which would be supernaturally punished on the spot angry disputes were often hushed with the warning whisper don't the sacred tree is here trees threatened order to make them bear fruit but the spirits of vegetation are not always treated with deference and respect if fair words and kind treatment do not move them stronger measures are sometimes resorted to the durian tree of the east indies whose smooth stem often shoots up to a height of eighty or ninety feet without sending out a branch bears a fruit of the most delicious flavour and the most disgusting stench the malays cultivate the tree for the sake of its fruit and have been known to resort to a peculiar ceremony for the purpose of stimulating its fertility near jagra in selandor there is a small grove of durian trees and on a specially chosen day the villagers used to assemble in it thereupon one of the local sorcerers would take out a hatchet and deliver several shrewd blows on the trunk on the most barren of the trees saying will you now bear fruit or not if you do not i shall fail you to this the tree replied through the mouth of another man who had climbed a mangostin tree hard by the durian tree being unclimbable yes i will now bear fruit i beg you not to fail me so in japan to make trees bear fruit two men go into an orchard one of them climbs up a tree and the other stands at the foot with an axe the man with the axe asks the tree whether it will yield a good crop next year and threatens to cut it down if it does not to this the man among the branches replies on behalf of the tree that it will bear abundantly or as this mode of horticulture may seem to us it has its exact parallels in europe on christmas eve many a south slavonian and bulgarian peasant swings an axe threateningly against the barren fruit tree whilst another man standing by intercedes for the menaced tree saying do not cut it down it will soon bear fruit thrice the axe is swung and thrice the impending blow is arrested at the entreaty of the intercessor 
After that, the frightened tree will certainly bear fruit next year. So at the village of Acria in Sicily, if a tree obstinately refuses to bear fruit, the owner pretends to hew it down. Just as the axe is about to fall, a friend intercedes for the tree, begging him to have patience for one year more, and promising not to interfere again if the culprit has not mended his ways by then. The owner grants his request, and the Sicilians say that a tree seldom remains deaf to such menace. A ceremony is performed on Eastern Sunday. In Armenia, the same pantomime is sometimes performed by two men for the same purpose on Good Friday. In the Abruzzi, the ceremony takes place before sunrise on the morning of St. John's Day, Midsummer Day. The owner threatens the trees, which are slow to bear fruit. Thrice he walks round each sluggard, repeating his threat and striking the trunk with the head of an axe. In Lesbos, when an orange tree or lemon tree does not bear fruit, the owner will sometimes set a looking-glass before the tree, then standing with an axe in his hand over against the tree and gazing at his reflection in the glass, he will feign to fall into a passion and will say aloud, Bear fruit or I'll cut you down. When cabbages merely curl their leaves instead of forming heads as they ought to do, the Estonian peasant will go out into the garden before sunrise, clad only in a shirt and armed with a scythe which he sweeps over the refractory vegetables as if he meant to cut them down. This intimidates the cabbages and brings them to a sense of their duty. Attempts to deceive the spirits of trees and plants If European peasants thus know how to work on the fuse of cabbages and fruit trees, the subtle Malay has learned how to overreach the simple souls of the plants and trees that grow in his native land. Thus when a bunch of fruit hangs from an Aran palm tree and in reaching after it, you tread on some of the fallen fruit. The galeries say that you ought to grunt like a wild boar in order that your feet may not itch. The chain of reasoning seems weak to a European mind, but the natives find no flaw in it. They have observed that wild boars are fond of the fruit, and run freely about among it as it lies on the ground. From this they infer that the animal's feet are proof against the itch which men suffer through treading on the fruit. Hence they conclude that if by grunting in a natural and lifelike manner you can impress the fruit with the belief that you are a pig, it will treat your feet as tenderly as the feet of his friends, the real pigs. Again, pregnant women in Java sometimes take a fancy to eat the wild species of a particular plant, Colocosia antiquarian, which on account of its exceedingly pungent taste is not commonly used as food by human beings, though it is relished by pigs. In such a case it becomes the husband's duty to go and look for the plant, but before he gathers it, he takes care to grunt loudly, in order that the plant may take him for a pig, and so mitigate the pungency of its flavour. Again, in the Mandun district of Java, there grows a plant of which the fruit is believed to be injurious for men, but not for apes. The urchins who herd buffaloes, and to whom nothing edible comes amiss, eat this fruit also, but before plucking it, they take the precaution of mimicking the voices of apes, in order to persuade the plant that its fruit is destined for the more of these creatures. Once more, the Javanese scrapes the rind of a certain plant, Sarcolobus narcoticus, into a powder, with which they poison such dangerous beasts as tigers and wild boars. But the rind is believed not to be a poison for men. Hence, the person who gathers the plant has to observe certain precautions in order that its baneful quality may not be lost in passing through his hands. He approaches it naked and creeping on all fours to make the plant think that he is a ravenous beast and not a man and to strengthen the illusion he bites the stalk. After that, the deadly property of the rind is assured. But even when the plant is being gathered, and the powder made from it, in strict accordance with certain superstitions rules, 
care is still needed in handling the powder, which is regarded as alive and intelligent. It may not be brought near a corpse, nor may a corpse be carried past the house in which the powder is kept, for if either of these things were to happen, the powder, seeing the corpse, would hastily conclude that it had already done its work, and so all its noxious quality would be gone. The Indians of the upper Orinoco extract a favourite beverage from certain palm trees which grow in the forests. In order to make the trees bear abundance of fruit, the medicine men blow sacred trumpets under them. But how this is supposed to produce the desired effect does not appear. The trumpets, or tulos, are objects of religious veneration. No woman may look upon them under pain of death. Candidates for initiation into the mysteries of the trumpet must be men of good character and celibate. The initiated members scourge each other, fast, and practice other austerities. Trees marry to each other. The conception of trees and plants as emanated beings naturally results in treating them as male and female who can be married to each other in a real and not merely a figurative or poetical sense of the word. The notion is not purely fanciful, for plants, like animals, have their sexes and reproduce their kind by the union of the male and female elements. But whereas in all the higher animals, the organs of the two sexes are regularly separated between different individuals, in most plants they exist together in every individual of the species. This rule, however, is by no means universal, and in many species the male plant is distinct from the female. The distinction appears to have been observed by some savages, for we are told that the Maoris are acquainted with the sex of trees, etc., and have distinct names for the male and female of some trees. Artificial Fertilization of the Date Palm The ancients knew the difference between the male and the female date palm, and fertilized them artificially by shaking the pollen of the male tree over the flowers of the female. The fertilization took place in the spring. Among the heathen of Haran, the month during which the palms were fertilized bore the name of the date month, and at this time they celebrated the marriage festival of all the gods and goddesses. Marriages of Trees in India Different from this true and fruitful marriage of the palm are the false and barren marriages of plants which play a part in Hindu superstition. For example, if a Hindu has planted a grove of mango Neither he nor his wife may taste of the fruit until he has formally married one of the trees, as a bridegroom, to a tree of a different sort, commonly a tamarind tree, which grows near it in the grove. If there is no tamarind to act as bride, a jasmine will serve the turn. The expenses of such a marriage are often considerable, for the more Brahmins are feasted at it, the greater the glory of the owner of the grove. A family has been known to sell its golden and silver trinkets and to borrow all the money they could in order to marry the mango tree to a jasmine with due pomp and ceremony. According to another account of this ceremony, a branch of a bar tree is brought and fixed near one of the mango trees in the grove to represent the bar or bridegroom, and both are wrapped round the same piece of cloth by the owner of the grove and his wife. To complete the ceremony, a bamboo basket containing the bride's belongings and dowry on a miniature scale is provided, and after the Brahmin priest has done his part, vermilion, the emblem of a complete marriage, is applied to the mango as to a bride. Marriage of the Holy Basil Another plant which figures as a bride in Hindu rites is the Tulasi, or Holy Basil, or Sinem Sanctum, 
It is a small shrub, not too big to be grown in a large flower pot, and is often placed in rooms. Indeed, there is hardly a respectable Hindu family that does not possess one. In spite of its humble appearance, the shrub is pervaded by the essence of Vishnu and his wife Lakshmi, and is itself worshipped daily as a deity. The following prayer is often addressed to it. I adore that Tulasi, in whose roots are all the sacred places of pilgrimage, and whose centre are all the deities, and in whose upper branches are all the Vedas. The plant is especially a woman's divinity, being regarded as an embodiment of Vishnu's wife Lakshmi, or of Rama's wife Sita, or of Krishna's wife Rukmini. Women worship it by walking round it and praying, or offering flowers and rice to it. Now this sacred plant, as the embodiment of a goddess, is annually married to the god Krishna in every Hindu family. The ceremony takes place in the month Kartika, or November. In western India, they often bring an idol of the youthful Krishna in a gorgeous palanquin, followed by a long train of attendants to the house of a rich man to be wedded to the basil, and the festivities are celebrated with great pomp. Again, as a wife of Vishnu, the holy basil is married to the Salagrama, a black fossil ammonite which is regarded as an embodiment of Vishnu. In northwestern India, this marriage of the plant to the fossil has to be performed before it is lawful to taste of the fruit of a new orchard. A man holding the fossil personates the bridegroom, another holding the basil represents the bride. After burning a sacrificial fire, the officiating Brahmin puts the usual questions to the couple about to be united. Bride and bridegroom walk six times around a small spot marked out in the centre of the orchard. Further, no will is considered lucky until the Salagrama has been solemnly wedded to the holy basil, which stands for the garden that the well is intended to water. The relations assemble. The owner of the garden represents the bridegroom, while the kinsman of his wife personates the bride. Gifts are given to the Brahmins. A feast is held in the garden, and after that both garden and well may be used without danger. The same marriage of the sacred fossil to the sacred plant is celebrated annually by the Raja of Orca at Lukara. A former Raja used to spend a sum equal to about £30,000, being one-fourth of his revenue upon the ceremony. On one occasion over 100,000 people are said to have been present at the rite and to have been feasted at the expense of the Raja. The procession consisted of eight elephants, twelve hundred camels, and four thousand horses, all mounted and elegantly caparisoned. The most sumptuously decorated of the elephants carried the fossil god to pay his bridal visit to little shrub goddess. On such an occasion all the rites of a regular marriage are performed, and afterwards the newly wedded couple are left to repose together in the temple till the next year. On Christmas Eve, German peasants used to tie fruit trees together with straw ropes to make them bear fruit, saying that the trees were thus married. Trees in blossom and rice in bloom, treated like pregnant women. In the Moluccas, when the clove trees are in blossom, they are treated like pregnant women. No noise may be made near them. No light or fire may be carried past them at night. No one may approach them with his hat on, or must uncover in their presence. These precautions are observed lest the tree should be allowed to bear no fruit, or should drop its fruit too soon, like the untimely delivery of a woman who has been frightened in her pregnancy. So in the east the growing rice crop is often treated with the same considerate regard as a breeding woman. As in Mbunya, 
when the rice is in bloom the people say that it is pregnant and fire no guns and make no other noises near the field for fear least ere the rice were thus disturbed it would miscarry and the crop will be all straw and no grain the javanese also regard the bloom on the rice as a sign that the plant is pregnant and they treat it accordingly by mingling in the water that irrigates the fields a certain astringent food prepared from sour fruit which is believed to be wholesome for women with child in some districts of western borneo there must be no talk of corpses or demons in the fields else the spirit of the growing rice would be frightened and flee away to java the Tabungos of central Salibs will not fire a gun in a rice field, lest the rice shall be frightened away. The Chams of Bin Thorn in Cochin, China, not dare to touch the rice in the granary at midday, because the rice is then asleep, and it would be both rude and dangerous to disturb its noonday slumber. In Orissa, growing rice is considered as a pregnant woman, and the same ceremonies are observed with regard to it as in the case of human females. In Poso, a district of central Salibs, when the rice ears are beginning to form, women go through the field feeding the young ears with soft-boiled rice to make them grow fast. They carry the food in calabashes, and grasping the ears in their hands, bend them over into the vessels that they may partake of the strengthening pap. The reason for boiling the rice soft is that the ears are regarded as young children who could not digest rice cooked in the usual way. The Tomori of central Salibs the ripening rice by touching it with the contents of a broken leaf. When the grain begins to form, the people of Gayo, a district of southern Sumatra, regard the rice as pregnant and feed it with a pap composed of rice meal, coconut, and treacle, which they deposit on leaves in the middle and at the corners of the field. And when the crop is plentiful and the rice is being threshed, they give it water to drink at a pitcher, which they bury to the neck in the heap of grain. Trees supposed to be tenanted by the souls of the dead. Sometimes it is the souls of the dead which are believed to animate trees. The Dairi tribe of South Australia regard as very sacred certain trees which are supposed to be their fathers transformed. Hence they speak with reverence of the trees, and are careful they shall not be cut down and burned. If the settlers require them to hew down the trees, they earnestly protest against it, asserting that were they to do so, they would have no luck. They might be punished for not protecting their ancestors. Some of the Philippine islanders believe that the souls of their ancestors are in certain trees, which they therefore spare. If they are obliged to fell one of these trees, they excuse themselves to it by saying that it was the priest who made them do it. The spirits take up their abode by preference in tall and stately trees with great spreading branches. When the wind rustles the leaves, the natives fancy it is the voice of the spirit, and they never pass near one of these trees without bowing respectively, and asking pardon of the spirit for disturbing his repose. Among the ignorots in the district of Lepanto, every village has its sacred tree, in which the souls of the dead forefathers of the hamlet reside. Offerings are made to the trees, and any injury done to it is believed to entertain some misfortune in the village. Were the tree cut down, the village and all its inhabitants would invariably perish. Natives of Bontok, a province in the north of Luzon, cut down the woods near their villages, but leave a few fine trees standing as the abode of the spirits of their ancestors, and it was. And they honour the spirits by depositing food on the trees. The Dyaks believe that when a man dies by accident, as by drowning, it is a sign that the gods mean to exclude him from the realms of bliss. 
Accordingly, his body is not buried, but carried into the forest, and there laid down. The souls of such unfortunates pass into trees or animals of fish, and are much dreaded by the Dayaks, who abstain from using certain kinds of wood or eating certain sorts of fish, because they are supposed to contain the souls of the dead. Once while walking with a Dayak through the jungle, Sir Hugh Lau observed that his companion, after raising his sword to strike a great snake, suddenly arrested his arm and suffered the reptile to escape. On asking the reason, he was told by the Dayak that the bush in front of which they were standing had been a man, a kinsman of his own, who had died some ten years before and appeared in a dream to his widow and told her that he had become that particular bamboo tree. Hence the ground everything on it was sacred, and the serpent might not be interfered with. The Dayak further related that in spite of the warning given to the woman in his vision, a man had been hardly enough to cut a branch of the tree, but that fool had paid for his temerity with his life, for he died soon afterwards. A little bamboo altar stood in front of the bush, on which the remnants of offerings presented to the spirit of the tree were still visible when Sir Hugh Lau passed that way. Tree supposed to be tenanted by the souls of the dead. In Korea, the souls of people who die of the plague or by the roadside, and of women who expire in childbed, invariably take up their abode in trees. To such spirits, offerings of cake, wine, and pork are made on heaps of stones piled under the trees. In China, it has been customary from time immemorial to plant trees on graves in order thereby to strengthen the soul of the deceased, and thus to save his body from corruption, and as the evergreen cypress and pine are deemed to be fuller of vitality than other trees, they have been chosen by preference for this purpose. Hence the trees that grow on graves are sometimes identified with the souls that departed. Among the Mayakea, an Aboriginal race of southern and western China, a sacred tree stands at the entrance of every village, and the inhabitants believe that it is tenanted by the soul of the first ancestor, and that it rules their destiny. Sometimes there is a sacred grove near a village, where the trees are suffered to rot and die on the spot. Their fallen branches come to the ground, and no one may remove them, unless he has first asked leave of the spirit of the tree and offer him a sacrifice. Among the marais of southern Africa, the burial ground is always regarded as a holy place when neither a tree may be felled nor a beast killed, because everything there is supposed to be tenanted by the souls of the dead. Trees supposed to be inhabited by spirits of the dead are reported to be common in southern Nigeria. Thus the Indem tribe on the Cross River, every village has a big tree into which the souls of the villagers are believed to pass at death. Hence they will not allow these trees to be cut, and they sacrifice to them when people are ill. Other natives of the Cross River say that the big tree of the village is their life, and that anybody who breaks a bough of it will fall sick or die unless he pays a fine to the chief. Some of the mountaineers on the northwest coast of New Guinea think that the spirits of their ancestors live on the branches of trees, on which accordingly they hang rags of red or white cotton, always in the number of seven, or a multitude of seven. Also they place food on the trees and hang it in baskets from the boughs. Among the Bariats of Siberia, the bones of the deceased shaman are deposited in a hole hewn in the trunk of a great fir, which is then carefully closed up. Thenceforth the tree goes by the name of the shaman's fir, and is looked upon as his abode. Whoever cuts down such a tree will perish with all his household. Every tribe has a sacred grove of firs in which the bones of the dead shamans are buried. In treeless regions, these firs often form isolated clumps on the hills and are visible from afar. 
the Lacundan Indians of British Columbia fancy that trees are transformed men, and that the creaking of the branches of the wind is their voice. In Croatia they say that witches used to be buried under old trees in the forest, and that their souls passed down the trees and left the villages in peace. A tree that grows on a grave is regarded by the South Slavonian peasant as a sort of fetish. Whoever breaks a trick of it hurts the soul of the dead, but gains thereby a magic wand, since the soul embodied in the twig will be at his service. This reminds us of the story of Polydorus and Virgil, and of the bleeding pomegranate that grew on the grave of the fratricides Etiocles and Polynices at Thebes. Similar stories are told far away from the classic lands of Italy and Greece. In an Ammonite tale, an old fisherman makes an incision in the trunk of a tree which has drifted ashore, but blood flows from the cut, and it appears that an empress, with her three daughters, who had been cast in the sea, are embodied in the tree. On the slave coast of West Africa, the Negroes tell how, from the molding bones of a little boy who had been murdered by his brother in the forest, there sprang up an edible fungus, which spoke and revealed the crime to the child's mother when she attempted to pluck it. Trees sometimes conceived, not as the body, but merely as the abode of spirits. In most, if not all, of these cases, the spirit is viewed as incorporate in the tree. It animates the tree and must suffer and die with it. But according to another and probably latter opinion, the tree is not the body, but merely the abode of the tree spirit, which can quit it and return to it at pleasure. The inhabitants of Sayul, an island of the Sangi group in the East Indies, believe in certain sylvan spirits who dwell in forests or in great solitary trees. At full moon the spirit comes forth from his lurking place and roams about. He has a big head, very long arms and legs, and a ponderous body. In order to appropriate the wood spirits, people bring offerings of food, fowls, goats, and so forth to the places which they are supposed to haunt. The people of the Nias think that when a tree dies, its liberated spirit becomes a demon, which can kill a coconut palm by merely lighting on its branches, and can cause the death of all the children in the house by perching on one of the posts that support it. Trees conceived as the abode of spirits. Further, they are of opinion that certain trees are at all times inhabited by roving demons who, if the trees were damaged, would be set free to go about on errands of mischief. Hence, the people respect these trees and are careful not to cut them down. On the Tango coast of East Africa, mischievous spirits reside in great trees, especially in the fantastically shaped baobabs. Sometimes they appear in the shape of ugly black beings, but as a rule, they enter unseen into people's bodies, which after causing much sickness and misery, they have to be cast out by the sorcerer. The Warramunga tribe of Central Australia believe that certain trees are the abode of disembodied human spirits waiting to be born again. No wind will strike one of these trees with an axe, lest the blue might disturb one of the spirits, who might come forth from the tree and enter her body. In the Gala region of East Africa, where the vegetation is magnificent, there are many sacred trees, the haunts of gin. Most of them belong to the Sycamore and Maple family, but they do not all exhale an equal order of sanctity. The Watisa, with its eligible fruit, is least revered. People climb it to get the fruit, and this disturbs the gin, who naturally do not care to linger among its boughs. The Gute Dubi, which has no edible fruit, is more sacred. Every Gala tribe has its sacred tree, which is always one individual of a particular species called Lafto, when a tree is being consecrated by a priest, it becomes holy, and no branch of it may be broken. Such trees are loaded with long threads, 
woolen bands and bracelets. The blood of animals is poured on their roots and sometimes smeared on their trunks. And pots are full of butter and milk and flesh are placed among the branches or on the ground under them. In mainly gala tribes, women may not tread on the shadow of sacred trees or even approach the trees. Ceremonies at Felling Trees Not a few ceremonies observed at cutting down haunted trees are based on the belief that the spirits have it in their power to quit the trees at pleasure or in case of need. Thus, when the Pelu Islanders are felling a tree, they conjure the spirit of the tree to leave it and settle on another. The wily negro of the slave coast who wishes to fell an shortened tree, but knows that he cannot do it so long as the spirit remains in the tree, places a little palm oil on the ground as a bait. And then, when the unsuspecting spirit has quitted the tree to partake in this dainty, hastens to cut down its late abode. The Alfours of Poso in central Salise believe that great trees are inhabited by demons in human form, and the taller the tree, the more powerful the demon. Accordingly, they are careful not to fell such trees, and they leave offerings at the foot of them for the spirits. But sometimes, when they are clearing land for cultivation, it becomes necessary to cut down the trees which cumber it. In the case of the Alfour, we'll call to the demon of the tree and beseech him to leave his abode and go elsewhere, and he deposits food under the tree as provision for the spirit on his journey. Then, and not till then, he may fall the tree. Woe to the luckless white who should turn a tree spirit out of his house without giving him due notice. When the Tobungos of central Sadibs are about to clear a piece of forest in order to plant rice, they build a tiny house and furnish it with tiny clothes and some food and gold. Then they call together all the spirits of the wood, offer them the little house with its contents and beseech them to quit the spot. After that they may safely cut down the wood without fearing to wound themselves in so doing. Before the tombori of central Salibs fell a tall tree, they lay a quid of betel at its foot, and invite the spirit who dwells in the tree to change his lodging. Moreover, they set a little ladder against the trunk to enable him to descend with safety and comfort. Ceremonies at Felling Trees The Sudanese of the eastern archipelago drive golden or silver nails into the trunk of a sacred tree for the sake of expelling the tree spirit before they hew down his abode. They seem to think that, though the nails will hurt him, his vanity will be soothed by the reflection that they are of gold or silver. In Rotian Island on the south of Timor, when they fill a tree to make a coffin, they sacrifice a dog as compensation to the tree spirit whose property they are thus making free with. Before the Gayos of northern Sumatra clear a piece of forest for the purpose of planting tobacco or sugar cane, they offer a quid of battle to the spirit whom they call the Lord of the Wood, and beg his leave to call themselves in his domain. The mandalings of Sumatra endeavour to lay the blame of all such misdeeds at the door of the Dutch authorities. Thus, when a man is cutting a road through a forest and has to fell a tall tree which blocks the way, he will not begin to ply his axe until he has said, Spirit who lodgest in this tree, take it not ill that I cut down thy dwelling, for it is done at no wish of mine, but by order of the controller. And when he wishes to clear a piece of forest land for cultivation, it is necessary that he should come to a satisfactory understanding with the woodland spirits who live there before he lays low their leafy dwellings. For this purpose, he goes to the middle of the plot of ground, stoops down, and pretends to pick up a letter. Then unfolding a bit of paper, he reads aloud an imaginary letter from the Dutch government, in which he is strictly enjoined to assert about clearing the land without delay. Having done so, he says, you hear that, spirits? I must begin clearing at once, or I shall be hanged. 
when the Tegaols of the Philippines are about to fill a tree which they believe to be inhabited by a spirit, they excuse themselves to the spirit, saying, The priest has ordered us to do it. The fault is not ours, nor the will either. There is a certain tree called Rara, which the Dayaks believe to be inhabited by a spirit. Before they cut down one of these trees, they strike an axe into the trunk, leave it there, and call upon the spirit either to quit his dwelling, or to give them a sign that he does not wish it to be meddled with. Then they go home. Next day, they visit the tree, and if they find the axe still sticking in the trunk, they can fell the tree without danger. There is no spirit in it, or he would certainly have ejected the axe from his abode. But if they find the axe lying on the ground, they know that the tree is inhabited, and they will not fell it for it must surely have been the spirit of the tree in person who expelled the intrusive axe. Some sceptical Europeans, however, argue that what casts out the axe is strike nine in the sap rather than the tree spirit. They say that if the sap is running, the axe must necessarily be forced out by the action of heat at the expansion of the exuding gutta, whereas if the axe remains in the trunk, this only shows that the tree is not vigorous but ready to die. Ceremonies at Felling Trees Before they cut down a great tree, the Indians in the neighborhood of Santiago de Petuan hold a festival in order to appease a tree, and so prevent it from hurting anybody in its fall. In the Greek island of Siphnos, if woodmen have to fell a tree which they regard as possessed by a spirit, they are most careful when it falls, to prostrate themselves humbly, and in silence, lest a spirit should chastise them as it escapes. Sometimes they put a stone on the stump of the tree to prevent the egress of the spirit. In some parts of Sumatra, as soon as a tree is felled, a young tree is planted on the stump, and some betel and few small coins are also placed on it. The purpose of the ceremony seems plain. The spirit of the tree is offered a new home in the young tree planted on the stump of the old one, and the offering of betel and money is meant to compensate him for the disturbance he has suffered. Similarly, when the margs of Bengal were obliged by Europeans to cut down trees which the natives believed to be tenanted by spirits. One of them was always ready with a green sprig, which he ran and placed in the middle of the stump when the tree fell. As a propitiation to the spirit which had been displaced so roughly, pleading at the same time the orders of the strangers for the work. In Halmahira, however, the motive for placing a sprig on the stump is said to be to deceive the spirit into thinking that the fallen stem is still growing in its old place. The Gilyaks insert a stick with curled shavings on the stump of the tree which they have felled, believing that in this way they give back to the dispossessed tree spirit his life and soul. German woodmen make a cross upon the stump while the tree is falling, in the belief that this enables the spirit of the tree to live upon the stump. Before the Gatotas fell a forest tree, they choose a tree of the same kind and worship it by presenting a coconut, burning incense, applying a red pigment, and begging it to bless the undertaking. The intention, perhaps, is to induce the spirit of the former tree to shift its quarters to the latter. In clearing a wood, a galleries must not cut down the last tree till the spirit in it has been induced to go away. When the Dyaks fell the jungle on the hills, you often leave a few trees standing on the hilltops as a refuge for the dispossessed tree spirits. Sailing up the Baram River in Sarawak, you pass from time to time a clearing in the forest where manioc is cultivated. In the middle of every one of these clearings, a solitary tree is always left standing as a home for the ejected spirits of the wood. Its boughs are stripped off, all but the topmost, and just under its leafy crown, two cross pieces are fastened from which rags dangle. Similarly, in India, 
the gonds allow a grove of typical trees to remain as a home or reserve for the woodland spirits when they are clearing away a jungle the mandaras have sacred groves which were left standing when the land was cleared lest the sylvan gods disquieted at the felling of the trees should abandon the place the mirrors in assam are unwilling to break up new land for cultivation so long as there is fallow land available but they fear to offend the spirits of the woods by hewing down trees needlessly on the other hand when a child has been lost the padams of assam think that it has been stolen by the spirits of the wood so they retaliate on the spirits by felling trees till they find the child the spirits fearing to be left without a tree in which to lodge give up the child and is found in the fork of a tree propagating tree spirits in house and timber even when a tree has been felled sawn into planks and used to build a house it is possible that the woodland spirit may still be lurking in the timber and accordingly some people seek to propagate him before or after they occupy the new house hence when a new dwelling is ready the torojas of central sleeves kill a goat a pig or a buffalo and smear all the woodwork with his blood if the building is a lobo or spirit house a fowl or a dog is killed on the ridge of the roof and its blood allowed to flow down on both sides the rudo tornapu in such a case sacrifice a human being on the roof this sacrifice on the roof of a lobo or temple serves the same purpose as a smearing of blood in the woodwork of an ordinary house the intention is to appropriate the forest spirits who may still be in the timber they are thus put in good humour and will do the inmates of the house no harm for a like reason people in salives and the Moluccas are much afraid of planting a post upside down at the building of a house but the forest spirit who might still be in the timber would very naturally resent his indignity and visit the inmates with sickness the bahoas or canyans of central borneo are of opinion that tree spirits stand very stiffly on the point of honour and visit men with their displeasure for any injury done to them hence after building a house whereby they have been forced to ill-treat many trees these people observe a period of penance for a year during which they must abstain from many things such as the killing of bears tiger cats and serpents the period of taboo is brought to an end by a ceremony which head-hunting or the presence of it plays a part the uluayar dayaks of the monday river are still more punctilious in their observance of taboos after building a house the length of the penance depends chiefly on the kind of timber used in the construction of the dwelling if the timber was the valuable ironwood the inmates of the house must deny themselves various dainties for three years but the spirits of humbler trees are less exacting when the cayans have felled an ironwood tree in order to cut it up into planks for a roof they will offer a pig to the spirits of the tree hoping thus to prevent the spirits from molesting the souls of persons assembled under the roof sacred trees the abode of spirits thus the trees regarded sometimes as the body sometimes as merely the house of the tree spirit and when we read of sacred trees which may not be cut down because they are the seat of spirits it is not always possible to say with certainty in which way the presence of the spirit in the tree is conceived in the following cases perhaps the trees are regarded as the dwelling places of the spirits rather than as their bodies the sea dikes point to many a tree as sacred because it is the abode of a spirit with spirits and to cut one of these down would provoke the spirit's anger who might avenge himself by visiting the sacrilegious woodman with sickness 
The Bhattas of Sumatra have been known to refuse to cut down certain trees because they were the abode of mighty spirits who would resent the injury. One of the largest and stateliest of the forest trees in Perak is known as Toalong. It has a very poisonous sap which produces great irritation when it comes into contact with the skin. Many trees of this species have large hollow knobs on their trunks where branches have been broken off. These knobs are looked upon by the Malays as houses of spirits, and they object strongly to cut down trees that are thus disfigured, believing that the man who fells one of them will die within a year. When clearings are made in the forest, these trees are generally left standing to the annoyance and expense of planters. The Siamese fear to cut down any very fine trees as they should incur the anger of the powerful spirits who inhabit them. The En, a tribe of Upper Burma, worship the spirits of hills and forests, and over great tracts of country they will not lay out fields for fear of offending the spirits. They say that if a tree is felled, a man dies. In every Cond village, a large grove, generally of sale trees, Sharia Robusta, is dedicated to the forest god, whose favour is sought by the sacrifice of birds, hogs and sheep, together with an offering of rice and an idled egg. This sacred grove is religiously preserved. The young trees are occasionally pruned, but not a twig may be cut for use without the formal consent of the village and the ceremonial propitiation of the god. In some parts of Berar, the holy groves are so carefully preserved that during the annual festivals held in them, it is customary to gather and burn solemnly all dead and fallen branches and trees. The Larga calls of India believe that the tops of trees are the abode of spirits who are disturbed by the filling of the trees and will take vengeance. The Parahiya, a Dravidian tribe of Mirzapur, think that evil spirits live in the Salpapal and Mahua trees. They make offerings to such trees and will not climb into their branches. In Travancore, demons are supposed to reside in certain large old trees, which it would be sacrilegious and dangerous to hew down. A rough stone is generally placed at the foot of one of these trees as an image or emblem, and turmeric powder is rubbed on it. Some of the western tribes of British New Guinea dread certain female devils who inhabit large trees and are very dangerous. Trees supposed to be the abode of these demons are treated with much respect and never cut down. Near Old Calabar, there is a ravine full of the densest and richest vegetation, whence a stream of limpid water flows purling to the river. The spot was considered by a late king to be hollow ground, the residence of Ananza, the tutelary god of old Calabar. The people had strict orders to revere the grove, no branch of it might be cut. Among the Bambaras of the upper Niger, every village has its sacred tree, generally a tamarind, which is supposed to be the abode of the fetish and is carefully preserved. The fetish is consulted on every important occasion, and sacrifices of sheep, dogs and fowls accompanied with offerings of millet and fruits are made on the sacred tree. In the deserts of Arabia, a modern traveller found a great solitary acacia tree, which the Bedouin believed to be possessed by a genie. Shreds of cotton and horns of goats hung among the boughs, and nails were knocked into the trunk. An Arab strongly dissuaded the traveller from cutting a branch of the tree, assuring him that it was death to do so. The Yoroks, who inhabit the southern coast of Asia Minor and the heights of Mount Taurus, have sacred trees which they never cut down from fear of driving away the spirits that own them. The old Prussians believe that gods inhabited tall trees, such as oaks, from which they gave audible answers to inquirers, and these trees were not felled or worshipped as the home of divinities. Amongst the trees as venerated by them was the older tree. 
this Hermagatin's thought that if any one ventured to injure certain groves, all the birds or beasts in them, the spirits would make his hands or feet crooked. Down to the 19th century, the Ersonians stood in such awe of many trees, which they considered as the seat of mighty spirits, they would not even pluck a flower or a berry on the ground where the shadow of the trees fell, much less would they dare to break a branch from the tree itself. Sacred Groves Even where no mention is made of wood spirits, we may generally assume that when trees or groves are sacred and inviolable, it is because they are believed to be either inhabited or animated by sylvan deities. In central India, the bar tree, ficus indica, and the pipal tree, ficus religiosa, are sacred, and every child learns the saying that it is better to die a leper than pluck a leaf of a pipal, and he who can wound a bar will kick his little sister. In Livonia, there is a sacred grove in which, if any man fells a tree or breaks a branch, he will die within a year. The Watyaks have sacred groves. A Rajan who ventured to hew a tree in one of them fell sick and died the next day. The heathen Jeremis of southeastern Russia have sacred groves, and woe to him who dares to fell one of the holy trees. If the author of the sacred religion is unknown, they take a cock or a goose, torture it to death, and then throw it on the fire, while they pray to the gods to punish the sinner and cause him to perish like the bird. Near a chapel of St. Ninan, in the parish of Billy, there stood more than a century and a half ago a row of trees, of equal size, thick planted for about the length of a butt, which were looked upon by the superstitious papists as sacred trees, but which they reckoned it sacrilege to take so much as a branch or any of the fruit. So in the island of Skye, some two hundred and fifty years ago, there was a holy lake, surrounded by a fair wood, which none presumes to cut. And those who ventured to infringe its sensitivity by breaking even a twig, either sickened on the spot or were visited outwards by some signal inconvenience. Sacrifices offered by cutting down trees are doubtless meant to appease the wood spirits. In Gilgat it is usual to sprinkle goat's blood on a tree of any kind before felling it. The Akiku of British East Africa hold the Mugumu or Mugumo tree, a species of fig, sacred on account of its size and fine appearance. Hence they do not ruthlessly cut it down like all other trees, which corner a patch of ground that it is to be cleared for tillage. Groves of this tree are sacred. In them no axe may be laid to any tree, no branch broken, no firewood gathered, and no grass burnt, and wild animals which have taken refuge there may not be molested. In these sacred groves sheep and goats are sacrificed, and prayers are offered for rain or fine weather, or in behalf of sick children. The whole meat of the sacrifices is left on the ground for God, and a guy to eat. The fat is placed in a cleft of the trunk, or in the branches, as a titbit for him. He leaves up to the boughs, but comes down to partake of the food. End of section 2section three of the golden bell part one the magic art and the evolution of kings volume two by james fraser this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or a volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recorded by leon harvey chapter nine subchapter two beneficent power of tree spirits Transition of tree spirit 
into anthropomorphic deity of the woods. When a tree comes to be viewed, no longer as a body of the tree spirit, but simply as its abode, which can quit at pleasure, an important advance has been made in religious thought. Animism is passing into polytheism. In other words, instead of regarding each tree as a living and conscious being, man now sees in it merely a lifeless inert mass, tenanted for a longer or shorter time by a supernatural being, who, as he can pass freely from tree to tree, thereby enjoys a certain right of possession or lordship over the trees, and ceasing to be a tree soul, becomes a forest god. As soon as the tree spirit is thus, in a measure, disengaged from each particular tree, it begins to change its shape and assume the body of a man in virtue of a general tendency of early thought to clothe all abstract spiritual beings in concrete human form. Hence, in classical art, the sylvian deities are depicted in human shape, their woodland character being denoted by a branch with some equally obvious symbol. But this change of shape does not affect the essential character of the tree spirit. The powers which he exercised as a tree soul incorporated in a tree, he still continues to wield as a god of trees. This I shall now attempt to prove in detail. I shall show, first, that trees considered as animate beings are accredited with the power of making the rain to fall, the sun to shine, flocks and herds to multiply, and women to bring forth easily. And second, that the very same powers are attributed to tree gods conceived as anthropomorphic beings, or as actually incarnate in living men. Trees supposed to give rain and sunshine. First, then, trees or tree spirits are believed to give rain and sunshine. When the missionary to Rome of Prague was persuading the heathen Lithuanians to fill their sacred groves, a multitude of women besought the prince of Lithuania to stop him, saying that with the woods he was destroying the house of God from which they had been wont to get rain and sunshine. The Mandaras in Assam think that if a tree in the sacred grove is felled, the sylvan gods invite their displeasure by withholding rain. In order to procure rain, the inhabitants of Monyo, a village in the Sergian district of Upper Burma, chose the largest tamarind tree near the village and named it in the haunt of the spirit, Nat, who controls the rain. When they offer bread, coconuts, plantains and fowls to the guardian spirit of the village and to the spirit who gives rain, and they prayed, O Lord, Nat, have pity on us poor mortals, and stay not the rain, inasmuch as their offering is given ungrudgingly. Let the rain fall day and night. Artwards libations were made in honour of the spirit of the tamarid tree, and still later, three elderly women, dressed in fine clothes and wearing necklaces and earrings, sang the rain song. In Cambodia, each village or province has its sacred tree, the abode of a spirit. If the rains are late, the people sacrifice to the tree. In time of drought, the elders of the Wakumba in East Africa assemble and take the calabash of cider and a goat to a baobab tree, where they kill the goat but do not eat it. When November women go out to sow corn, they take with them in the basket of seed two green branches of a particular kind of tree, Peltophorum africanum sond, one of which they plant in the field along with the first seed sown. The branches believe to have the power of attracting rain. Hence, in one of the native dialects, the tree goes by the name of the rain bush. To extort rain from the tree's spirit, a branch is sometimes dipped in water, as we have seen above. In such cases, the spirit is doubtless supposed to be imminent in the branch, and the water thus applied to the spirit produces rain by a sort of sympathetic magic, exactly as we saw that in New Caledonia the rainmakers pour water on a skeleton, believing that the soul of the deceased will convert the water into rain. There is hardly room to doubt that 
Manhart is right in explaining as a rain charm the European custom of drenching with water the trees which are cut at certain popular festivals as midsummer, white suntide, and harvest. Tree spirits supposed to make the crops grow. Again, tree spirits made the crops grow. Amongst the Mandaras, every village has its sacred grove, and the grove deities are held responsible for the crops, and are especially honoured at all the great agricultural festivals. The Negroes of the Gold Coast are in the habit of sacrificing at the foot of certain tall trees, and they think that if one of these were felled, all the fruits of the earth would perish. Before harvest, the Wabon Day of East Africa sacrifice a goat to the spirit that lives in baobab trees. The blood is pulled into a hole at the foot of one of the trees. If the sacrifice were emitted, the spirit would send disease and death among the people. The galas dancing couples round sacred trees, praying for a good harvest. Every couple consists of a man and a woman, who are linked together by a stick, of which each holds one end. Under their arms they carry green corn or grass. Swedish peasants stick a leafy branch in each furrow of their cornfields, believing that this will ensure an abundant crop. The Harvest May The same idea comes out in the German and French custom of the Harvest May. This is a large branch, or a whole tree, which is decked with ears of corn, brought home in a last wagon from the harvest field, and fastened on the roof of the farmhouse or of the barn where it remains for a year. Manhart has proved that this branch or tree embodies the tree spirit conceived as the spirit of vegetation in general, whose vivifying and fructifying influence is thus brought to bear upon the corn in particular. As in Swabia, the harvest may is fastened amongst the last stalks of corn left standing on the field, and the last sheaf is cut attached to its trunk. The harvest may of Germany has its counterpart in the Erisone of ancient Greece. The Erisone was a branch of olive or laurel, bound about with ribbons and hung with a variety of fruits. This branch was carried in procession at a harvest festival and was fastened over the door of the house, where it remained for a year. The object of preserving the harvest may, or the Erisone for a year, is that the life-giving virtue of the bough may foster the growth of the crops throughout the year. By the end of the year, the virtue of the bough is supposed to be exhausted, and it is replaced by a new one. Following a similar train of thought, some of the Dyaks of Sarawak are careful at the rice harvest to take up the roots of a certain bulbous plant, which bears a beautiful crown of white and fragrant flowers. These roots are preserved with the rice in the granary, and are planted again with the rice seed in the following season. The Dyaks say that the rice will not grow unless a plant of this sort be in the field. Customs like the Harvest May in India and Africa Customs like that of the Harvest May appear to exist in India and Africa. At a harvest festival of the Lasai in southeast India, the chief goes with his people into the forest and fells a large tree, which is then carried into the village and set up in the midst. Sacrifice is offered, and spirits and rice are poured over the tree. The ceremony closes with a feast and a dance, at which the unmarried men and girls are the only performers. Among the Bequanas, Backthorn is very sacred, and it would be a serious offence to cut a bough from it and carry it into the village during the rainy season. When the corn is ripe in the ear, the people go with axes, and each man brings home a branch of the sacred Hackthorn, with which they repair the village cattle yard. According to another authority, it is a rule with the Bequanas that neither the hookthorn nor the milk tree must be cut down while the corn is on the ground, for this they think will prevent rain. 
When I was at Latakul, though Mr. Hamilton stood in much need of some milk tree timber, he durst not supply himself to all the corn was gathered in. Many tribes of the southeast in Africa will not cut down timber while the corn is green, fearing that if they did so, the crops would be destroyed by blight, hail, or early frost. The heathen Cherimis and the Russian government of Kassan will not fell trees, mow grass, or dig the ground while the corn is in bloom. Again, the fructifying power of the tree is put forth at seed time as well as at harvest. Among the Aryan tribes of Gilgit, on the northwestern frontier of India, the sacred tree is a chili, a species of cedar, Juniperus excelsior. At the beginning of wheat sowing, the people receive from the Raja's granary a quantity of wheat, which is placed in a skin mixed with sprigs of the sacred cedar. A large bonfire of the cedar wood is lighted, and the wheat which is to be sown is held over the smoke. The rest is ground and made into a large cake, which is baked on the same fire and given to the ploughman. Here the intention of fertilising the seed by means of the sacred cedar is unmistakable. Fertilising Virtue Attributed to Trees In all these cases, the power of fostering the growth of crops, and in general, of cultivated plants, is ascribed to trees. The ascription is not unnatural, for the tree is the largest and most powerful member of the vegetable kingdom, and man is familiar with it before he takes to cultivating corn. Hence he naturally places the feebler, and to him, newer plant, under the dominion of the older and more powerful. Tree spirits making herds to multiply and women to bring forth. Again, the tree spirit makes the herds to multiply and blesses women with offspring. The sacred chili, or cedar of Gilgit, was supposed to possess this virtue in addition to that of fertilizing the corn. At the commencement of wheat sowing, three chosen unmarried youths, after undergoing daily washing and purification for three days, used to start for the mountain where the cedars grew taking with them wine, oil, bread, and fruit of every kind. Having found a suitable tree, they sprinkled the wine and oil on it, while they ate the bread and fruit as a sacrificial feast. Then they cut off the branch and brought it to the village, where amid general rejoicing it was placed on a large stone beside running water. A goat was then sacrificed, its blood poured over the cedar branch, and wild dance took place, in which weapons were brandished about, and the head of the slaughtered goat was borne aloft, at which it was set up as a mark for arrows and bullet practice. Every good shot was rewarded with a gourd full of wine and some of the flesh of the goat. When the flesh was finished, the bones were thrown into the stream and a general ablution took place, after which every man went to his house, taking with him a spray of the cedar. On arrival at his house, he found the door shut in his face, and on his knocking for admission, his wife asked, What have you brought? To which he answered, If you want children, I have brought them to you. If you want food, I have brought it. If you want cattle, I have brought them. Whatever you want, I have it. The door was then opened, and he entered with his cedar spray. The wife then took some of the leaves and poured wine and water in them, placed them on the fire, and the rest was sprinkled with flour and suspended from the ceiling. She then sprinkled flour on her husband's head and shoulders, and addressed him thus. I assure you, Bagathon, son of the fairies, you have come from afar. Shiri Bagathon, the dreadful king, being from of address to the cedar when praying for once to be fulfilled. The next day the wife baked a number of cakes, and taking them with her, drove the family goats to the chili stone. When they were collected round the stone, she began to pelt them with pebbles, invoking the chili at the same time. According to the direction in which the goats ran off, omens were drawn as to the number and sex of the kids expected during the ensuing year. 
All nuts and pomegranates were then placed on the chilly stone. The cakes were distributed and eaten, and the goats followed the pasture in whatever direction they showed disposition to go. For five days afterwards, this song was sung in all the houses. Dread fairy king, I sacrifice before you. How nobly do you stand. You have filled up my house. You have brought me a wife when I had not one. Instead of daughters, you have given me sons. You have shown me the way of right. You have given me many children. Fertilizing virtue attributed to trees. Here the driving of the goats to the stone on which the cedar had been placed is clearly meant to impart to them the fertilizing influence of the cedar. In northern India, the Emblica officianus is a sacred tree. On the 11th of the month, Falgan, February, libations are bowed at the foot of the tree. A red or yellow string is bound about the trunk and prayers are offered to it for the fruitfulness of women, animals and crops. Again, in northern India, the coconut is esteemed one of the most sacred fruits and is called Srifala, or the fruit of Sri, the goddess of prosperity. It is the symbol of fertility, and all through Upper India is kept in shrines and presented by the priests to women who desire to become mothers. In the town of Kwa, near Old Calabar, there used to grow a palm tree which ensured conception to any barren woman who ate a nut from its branches. Influence of May Trees on Cattle In Europe, the May tree or May pole is apparently supposed to possess similar powers over both women and cattle. Thus, in some parts of Germany, on the 1st of May, the peasants set up May trees or May bushes at the doors of stables and briars, one for each horse and cow. It is thought to make the cows yield much milk. Of the Irish, we are told that they fancy a green bough of a tree fastened on May Day against the house will produce plenty of milk that summer. In Suffolk, there was an old custom reserved in most farmhouses that any servant who could bring in a branch of hawthorn in blossom on the 1st of May was entitled to a dish of cream for breakfast. Similarly, in parts of Cornwall, till certainly ten years ago, any child who brought to a dairy on May morning a piece of hawthorn in bloom or a piece of fresh bracken long enough to surround the earthenware bowl in which cream is kept was given a bowl of cream. On May Day, English milkmaids used to dance with garlands on their pails. One May morning, long ago, Pepys, on his way to Westminster, saw many of them dancing, thus to the music of a fiddle, while pretty Nell Gwyn, in her smock sleeves and bodice, watched them from the door of her lodgings in Drury Lane. May Tree or May Bush, a protection against witchcraft. However, in these and similar European customs, it seems that the influence of the tree, bush, or bough is really protective rather than generative. It does not so much fill the udders of the cows as prevent them from being drained dry by witches who ride on broomsticks or pitchforks through the air on the eve of May Day, the famous wild birders' night, and make great efforts to steal the milk from the cattle. Hence the many precautions which the prudent herdsman must take to guard his beasts at the season from the raids of these baleful creatures. For example, on May morning, the Irish scatter primroses on the threshold, keep a piece of red-hot iron on the hearth, or twine branches of white thorn and mountain ash or rowan about the door. Precautions against witchcraft on May Day. To save the milk, they cut and peel boughs of mountain ash, rowan, and bind the twigs round the milk pails and the churn. According to a writer of the 16th century, whose description is quoted by Camden, the Irish account every woman who fetches fire on may day a witch nor will they give it to any but sick persons and that with an imprecation believing she will steal all the butter the next summer 
On May Day they kill the hares they find among their cattle, supposing them the old woman who have designs on the butter. They imagine the butter so stolen may be recovered if they take some of the thatch hanging over the door and burn it. In the northeast of Scotland, pieces of rowan tree and woodbine, or a rowan alone, used to be placed over the doors of the cowhouses on May Day to keep the witches from their kine. And a still better way of attaining the same object was to tie a cross of rowan tree wound with a scarlet thread to each animal's tail. The Highlanders of Scotland believe that on Beltane Eve, that is, the night before May Day, the witches go about in the shape of hares and suck the milk from the cows. To guard against their depredations, tar was put behind the ears of the cattle and at the root of the tail, and the house was hung with rowan tree. For the same reason the Highlanders say that the peg of the cow shuttle and the handle and cross the churn staff should always be made of rowan, because that is the most potent charm against witchcraft. In the Isle of Man on May Day, old style, people carried crosses of rowan in their hats and fastened mayflowers over their doors as a protection against elves and witches, and for the same purpose they tied crosses of rowan to the tails of the cattle. Also, women wash their faces in the dew early on May morning in order to secure good luck a fine complexion and immunity from witches further the break of day on the morning was a signal for setting the ling or gorus on fire which was done for the sake of burning out the witches who were wont to take the shape of hares in some places indeed as in the lesayer parish the practice was to burn gorus in the hedge of every field to drive away the witches who were still feared in the isle of man in norway and denmark branches of rowan are similarly used to protect houses and cattle stalls against witches on Walpurgis night, and there too it is thought that the turnstuffs should be made of rowan. In Germany a common way of keeping witches from the cattle on Walpurgis night is to chalk up three crosses on the door of the cowhouse. Branches of buckthorn stuck in the muck heaps on the eve of May Day answer the same purpose. In Silesia the precautions taken at this season against witches are many and various. For example, pieces of buckthorn are nailed crosswise over the door of the cowhouse. Pitchforks and harrows turned upside down, with the prongs pointing outwards, are placed at the doors, and a sort of fresh turf from a meadow is laid before the threshold and strewed with marsh marigolds. Before the witches can pass the threshold, they must count every blade of grass in the turf and every petal of the marigolds, and while they are still counting the day breaks and the power is gone. For the same reason the little birch trees are set up at the house door, because the witches cannot enter the house till they have counted all the leaves, and before they have done the sum it is broad daylight, and they must flee away with the shadows. On Wallapurka's night, the Germans of Moravia put knives under the threshold of the cowhouse and twigs of birch at the door and in the muck heap to keep the witches from the cows. For the same purpose, the Bohemians at this season lay branches of gooseberry bushes, hawthorn and wild rose trees on the thresholds of the cowhouses, because the witches are caught by the thorns and can get no farther. We now see why thorny trees and bushes, whether hawthorn, buckthorn, or what not, afford protection against witchcraft. They serve as prickly hedges through which the witches cannot force their way. But this explanation clearly does not apply to the mountain ash and the birch. Influence of tree spirits on cattle among the Wends, Estonians, and Caucasians. On the 2nd of July, some of the Wens used to set up an oak tree in the middle of the village with an iron cock fastened to its top, and they danced round it and drove the cattle round it to make them thrive. 
Some of the Estonians believe in a mischievous spirit called Metzik, who lives in the forest and has the will of the cattle in his hands. Every year a new image of him is prepared. On an appointed day all the villagers assemble and make a straw man, dress him in clothes, and take him to the common pasture land of the village. Here the figure is fastened to a high tree, round which the people dance noisily. Almost every day of the year prayer and sacrifice are offered to him that he may protect the cattle. Sometimes the image of Metesk is made of a corn sheaf and fastened to a tall tree in the wood. The people perform strange antics before it to induce Metzik to guard the corn and the cattle. The Circassians regard the pear tree as a protector of cattle, so they cut down a young pear tree in the forest, branch it and carry it home, where it is adored as a divinity. Almost every house has one such pear tree. In autumn, on the day of the festival, the tree is carried into the house with great ceremony to the sound of music, and amid the joyous cries of all the inmates, who complimented on its fortunate arrival. It is covered with candles, and a cheese is fastened to its top. Round about it they eat, drink, and sing. Then they bid the tree goodbye and take it back to the courtyard, where it remains for the rest of the year, set up against the wall without receiving any mark of respect. Tree Spirits Grant Offspring, or an Easy Delivery to Women In the Duho tribe of Maoris, the power of making women fruitful is ascribed to trees. These trees are associated with the navel strings of definite mythical ancestors, as indeed the navel strings of all children used to be hung upon them down to quite recent times. A barren woman had to embrace such a tree with her arms, and she received a male or a female child according as she embraced the east or the west side. The common European custom of placing a green bush on May Day before or on the house of a beloved maiden probably originated in the belief of the fertilizing power of the tree spirit. In some parts of Bavaria, such bushes are set up also at the homes of newly married pairs, and the practice is only omitted if the wife is near her confinement, for in that case they say that the husband has set up a may bush for himself. Among the South Slavonians, a barren woman who desires to have a child places a new chemise upon a fruitful tree on the eve of St. George's Day. Next morning before sunrise, she examines a garment, and if she finds that some living creature has crept on it, she hopes that her wish will be fulfilled within a year. Then she puts on the chemise, confident that she will be fruitful as the tree on which the garment has passed the night. Among the Karakas, barren women roll themselves on the ground under a solitary apple tree in order to obtain offspring. Some of the hill tribes of India have a custom of marrying the bride and bridegroom to two trees before they are married to each other. For example, among the Mundas, the bride touches with red lead the Maha tree clasp it in her hands, hand is tied to it, and the bridegroom goes through a like ceremony with the mango tree. The intention of the custom may perhaps be to communicate to the newly wedded pair the vigorous reproductive power of the trees. Power of trees to grant women an easy delivery. Lastly, the power of granting to women an easy delivery at childbirth is ascribed to trees both in Sweden and Africa. In some districts of Sweden there was formerly a bartrad, or guardian tree, lime at realm, in the neighbourhood of every farm. No one would pluck a single leaf of the sacred tree, any injury to which was punished by ill luck or sickness. Brennan women used to clasp a tree in their arms in order to ensure an easy delivery. In some negro tribes of the Congo region, pregnant women make themselves garments out of the bark of a certain sacred tree, 
because they believe that this tree delivers them from the dangers that attend childbearing the story that let her clasp a palm tree and an olive tree or two laurel trees when she was about to give birth to the divine twins apollo and artemis perhaps points to a similar great belief in the efficiency of certain trees to facilitate delivery End of section 3。Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.